Would you open God's precious holy word to 1 Chronicles chapter 3. The story of our redemption is written in these genealogies. I've, I've been, <laughs> for two days I've been reading secular history that matched the time frame of the genealogies that we're studying. It's, it's rather interesting. And I've, I've thought how, how empty it would be if from Adam to Christ, the, the lineage had been lost or was meaningless. <clears throat> Our Lord teaches us through all of this that every generation is important with regard to the story of redemption. Not important necessarily in the way that the world thinks, but certainly important in the way that God's people think and that the way that they thought during the course of uh, of, of their generations that, that led through the Old Testament all the way to the Christ. So what happens here is, and we'll see this, and I, I've pretty much made the point, I think, in the first couple of chapters. But now we're going to get to the point where a genealogy will be given and then a genealogy, another genealogy, will start back before that genealogy ended. And it, it will seem kind of confusing unless we put everything in its perspective and understand what, uh, what we're being taught and instructed in when we study these genealogies. Hopefully, you and I together will get some kind of grasp as we continue. This goes through the, cha the ninth chapter of First Chronicles. But it settles in in 1 Chronicles 10 in a parallel sense with what we'll be studying in 2 Samuel, which is namely the, the life story of, of King David. So now we're to the genealogy here in chapter 3. It begins with the royal family, the family of David. Now what we're going to study in the first part covers from about 1010 B.C. to 586 B.C. More on that as we get through all of this. In this portion and in the final part of all nine chapters, first nine chapters of First Chronicles, David is presented as a central figure in the history of humanity. Today, right now, the enemies of Israel are bombing Jerusalem. It's a, it's a worldwide news event. Other places are being bombed today. But for some reason, our attention all across the world is drawn to Jerusalem. Jerusalem only has importance because David defeated the Jebusites who were there and made it his capital city, namely the capital city of what, what would become, in David's day it was Israel, but then it became the southern kingdom of Judah after, uh, during the reign of Rehoboam. But the son of David would sit on the throne in Jerusalem for the southern kingdom. And that is, the, that is the promise in the covenant that God made with David. During the millennial reign, the capital city of the world, really, where the son of David will be enthroned is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
So it has drawn Satan's attention, obviously, as it has throughout the history of the Jewish people. And nations have, have conspired and they've, they've been raised up by the powers of the world to seek to destroy the Jews and to steal away the city of Jerusalem and the land, the promised land of Israel. So David presented here as a central figure in the history of humanity. Now that's important to us. As I said last time, just one family, one, one generation after another, very, very common folk it would seem. They are working people. They're not, they're not out to defeat the world. But they carry within their veins the promise that God has made from the time he promised that the seed of woman would, would uh, defeat the serpent, that bruise, destroy, crush the head of the serpent. That promise, and we've seen it in the Bible, we've talked about it even in First Chronicles here, how that covenant has continued on throughout human history. And it has come to rest at this point on David. And the son of David would sit on the throne. And this would be a throne that would last forever because it is the throne that would rule over the kingdom of God and especially in the millennial reign after the times of the Gentiles have come to an end. So we keep this in mind that to us, we understand that the Lord through his word is presenting David as a central figure in the history of the human race. So here we go, beginning in verse one. These were the sons of David. Now this is about 1010 BC, who were born to him in Hebron. Now the first four verses, and we'll get to verse four in the next slide, but the first four verses divide the reign of David into two parts. The reign of David in Hebron. This is where he was ruler over two tribes. And then after that, and it was just for a certain, what, seven and a half years or so. Then after that, Jerusalem. And for 33 years, he was king over all of Israel. So understand then that the life and lineage of David here, by the word of the Lord, is seen to be divided into two camps. The first David's life and the sons that were born to him in Hebron and then those in Jerusalem. So we keep going. These were born to him in Hebron. The firstborn Amnon to Ahinoam the Jezreelites. The second Daniel to Abigail the Carmelites. The third Absalom, the son of Meacha. Now, of course, Absalom is the one who rebelled against David the daughter of Tamai, the king of Geshur. Now, I have highlighted how mixed in the genealogy that we'll be studying are, are Gentiles. Now, this, 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 this marriage, this daughter of the king of Geshur is, is obviously, as it was in those days with kings, some kind of political uh, arrangement. The fourth Adonijah, now, Adonijah, he is the one who tries to overthrow Solomon, and Solomon had him executed. Solomon has another mother. They're both sons of David. He's the son of Hagith. The fifth, Shephatiah to Abital. The sixth, Ithrim to Eglah, his wife. Six were born to him in Hebron. And he reigned there seven years, six months. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 33 years. These were born to him in Jerusalem. It should be noted here at this point that from that point on, every son of David, every king of Judah 
was born in and resided in Jerusalem until the very last one who was born in Jerusalem, but he was carried away uh, in the time of the exile, in the time of, of uh, Babylon. So these were born to David in Jerusalem, Shemia and Shobab and Natan and Solomon four. Tabath Shua, Bat Shua is Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel, and Ibhar and Elishama and Elifetlet, Naga, Nefeg, Jafia, Elishima, Eleyada, Elifelet, nine. Now you're going to say, well, there's two guys named Elifelet. Well, there's a reason for that. The purpose of the message is not to go into explaining all of these, all of these uh, genealogies. Um, but, uh, but, but there is a, there is a reason for this, uh, namely an, one, one would, one would have died and another would be named in his place. Um, all the sons of David beside the sons, of the concubines and Tamar, their sister. So here's the list of the sons born to David, David's wives. Uh, in the time of Hebron and then in Jerusalem. Now, after, uh, let's go back. We have Solomon. <clears throat> he becomes the king after, <coughs> excuse me, after David. His son, Rehoboam, Rehoboam, and Abijah, his son. Everything that I have highlighted here, these, these, are the succeeding kings of Judah, sons of David. Abiyah, his son, Asa, his son, Jehoshaphat, his son, Joram, his son, Ahaziah, who is also Uzziah, his son, Joash, his son, Amaziah, his son, Azariah, his son, Jotam, his son, Ahaz, his son, Hezekiah. Our Hezekiah is the king. I have him highlighted in yellow. Hezekiah is the king who was the king of Judah when the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. They began their siege most likely in the reign of Ahaz and then utterly and completely destroyed and defeated the northern kingdom of Israel in the days of Hezekiah. You may remember that the Assyrians tried to invade and defeat Jerusalem, but God sent an angel and 185,000 troops were slain and it was by the act of God through the slaying of this major portion of their army when they surrounded and tried to defeat it, uh, Jerusalem that at that point uh, the Assyrians began losing their power. The, the pinnacle of their power was when they came against Jerusalem and the loss of that power is when they came against Jerusalem. Now, there's a reason for that. His son, Manasseh, I'm on his son, Josiah, Josiah, his son. Okay, so while we're talking, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. The Assyrians utterly and literally decimated and just destroyed the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, those were Israelites. And they were forced to intermarry. This was, the, this was the policy of the kings of Assyria. In order to keep nations defeated, it was their policy and belief that they had to take away their language, their culture, their heritage. And so they forced them to intermarry with other, other defeated nations. And for that portion of time, even until today, those 10 nations lost their identity, not lost to God because they'll be restored, but lost in the sense of not having, uh, not having their, their distinct identity as, as those tribes. Now, Babylon had a different policy. Remember, Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, son of David on the throne, Judah carried the promise of the Christ. The 10 tribes did not, but Judah does. The son of David does. 
So Assyria came against a weak Jerusalem, a weak Judah. They didn't, there was no, they didn't have the army, um, the tactics, they didn't have, they, they were not prepared and they could not defeat, nor could they withstand for very long, the siege of the Assyrians. Now the Assyrians were very cruel. They would do cruel things to make the world fear them. The Assyrian policy, of course, uh, as I said, was different from the Babylonians. Now the Babylonians, uh, or the Assyrians come against Hezekiah, God does not permit them to take Judah because they would have forced the loss of the identity of Judah, the Jew, and Hezekiah and the sons of David. All of that would have been lost. Well, there was a covenant that God had made with David and that couldn't be lost. So God sends an angel and now Babylon on the other hand had the policy of letting, of bringing nations, the best of a nation, the youngest, brightest minds, bring them away and the... the uh, the most successful people um, who, who knew how to deal in uh, trade and business, all these things, they would take the brightest and the best of a nation and transplant the best and the brightest over into Babylon and they would let them maintain their culture, they would let them maintain their ethnicity, they'd let them maintain their language, they would let them remain distinct as a people, it was the policy of Babylon that people once captured could be best dealt with if they were allowed to maintain their culture. So you see the covenant with David, the promise that God had made, the distinction of the Jew and of the son of David, all of those things were protected in the time of the Babylonian uh, captivity. So there was the difference between the two. Assyria could not be allowed to invade and conquer Jerusalem. But by the time Nebuchadnezzar had become king, the southern kingdom of Judah was so sinful with idolatry that the Bible even tells us that God raised up Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. He raised them up for the purpose of punishing the southern kingdom. But in the punishment, they would never lose their distinction as a culture, as a nation, as a people. Okay, uh, Josiah, his son, the sons of Josiah, the firstborn of Yohanan, the second Jehoiakim, the third Zedekiah, the fourth Shalom, the sons of Jehoiakim, Yekoniah, his son, Zedekiah, his son. Now, if I have them highlighted and underlined, they're the succeeding kings. Now, this is where the Babylons came in and this is in the year 586 BC. So since the time David was king to the time of the defeat of Jerusalem is 424 years. So we just flew past nearly four and a half centuries in the lines, the 16 what verses that we've read. Now in the time of the exile, genealogy continues. The sons of Yechoniah, Asir, Shaltel, his son, Malkiram, and Padaiah, and Shinazar, and Yechemiah, Hoshamah, and Nedabiah, and the sons of Padaiah, Zerubbabel. Okay, now, you remember this guy, Zerubbabel, in the time of Ezra. Zerubbabel became the governor of the people who were allowed to go back out of, out of Babylon. By, by this time, the Persians had defeated the Babylonians and Cyrus was a benevolent king in the sense that he permitted the Jewish people to go back to their land and rebuild their wall and rebuild their temple. So this Zerubbabel, we have to keep in mind, 
would have probably been the king. He, he is of the lineage of David. He probably would have been the king if, uh, if they hadn't fallen into defeat. So it's, it's, it's uh, important to take note of how the leadership continues even in the time of exile through a son of David, Zerubbabel. Shemi, the sons of Zerubbabel, Meshulam, Hananiah, Shelomit, their sister, and Hashabah, Ochel, Berechiah, and Hasadiah, Jeshub, Chesed, five, five, five of them. And the sons of Hananiah, Pelatiah, and Isaiah. His son was Raphaiah, and his son was Arnon, and his son was Obadiah, or Obadiah. His son was Shechaniah. Moving right through time, each of these generations understood that they had a promise and the prophets not only prophesied their ruin because of sin, but the prophets also prophesied their restoration and at last the continuing line of David through the son of David in the kingdom of God. So all these, every generation has this promise. Now these particular ones, these particular ones are of the line of David, the genealogy of the royal line of David. And I suppose, I mean, this is the gospel according to Charles. You can take it or leave it. But it might be that uh, each generation and especially each of the generations of the sons of David, may all of these people who are mentioned here, except for the women, perhaps these, these men in the lineage, the royal tribe, the royal line, perhaps would have had the thought. It, it might be that God would so move that I might become the king if Israel is restored. But anyway, it continues on. These were otherwise uh, very common people. And the sons of Shechaniah, Shemaiah, and the sons of Shemaiah, Hatush, and Jigal, and Bariah, Neriah, Shaphat, six of them. The sons of Neriah, El Joenai, and Hezekiah and Azrikam, there were three, and the sons of El Joenai, Hodaviah, and Eliashib, and Peleah, Peliah, and Akub, and Yochanin, and Deliah, and Anani, seven. All right, so at this point, They went back under Zerubbabel. Remember, we saw him a couple of slides ago. And he was the administrator, the governor of the people. Since Zerubbabel down to Anani and these seven, another 253 years approximately have passed. So we went through those 424 years. And now these, we've gone through these 253 years since since the return to the land. Each generation, each name mentioned, the line of David, each, each generation carrying the promise of the Christ and carrying the reality of being of the royal line of David. So these are all sons of David as, as it continues all the way even into their return. Now, we've covered an, a time that goes from about 1000 BC to about 300 BC. You take your secular history book, you look at it, here are some of the things that you'll extract. You won't get any of the stuff we just read because that's God's history, that's God's lineage. Gentile nations and powers are only relevant as to how God chooses to use them 
in the, in the protection and the keeping and the development of his people. And most, most especially the line of David. So, so God pays great attention in every one of those generations. Everyone is protected, all of them, all the way, have been protected all the way through. But here's, here's what happened. Here's what's happening in the world. 1000 BC to 900 BC, Rigveda, a collection of Vedic Sanskrit hymns is composed about 1000 BC. The rise of the Olmec civilization in Mexico about 1000 BC. The Phoenician alphabet is developed somewhere around 1000 BC. The Phoenician city of Tyre flourishes under King Hiram who lived from who was in power from 969 to 936 BC. Solomon succeeds his father David as king of the kingdom of Israel somewhere around 964 BC. The kingdom of Israel then is divided into Israel and Judah at Solomon's death in nine, about 926 BC. So now from 900 to 800 BC, Assyria becomes a major power under Ashurnasirpal II. Carthage is established by the Phoenicians in 814 BC. The Greek alphabet around 800 BC uh, is, is uh, invented developed. The composition of the Upanishads around 800 BC. From 800 to 700 BC, the first Olympic Games in 776 BC. The foundation of the city of Rome, April 21st, 753 BC. The first Greek colony, Cumae, is established northwest of Naples around 750 BC. The Iliad and Odyssey are written by Homer, about 750 BC. The first Mycenaean War fought from 743 to 724 BC. Syracuse is founded by the Greek settlers from Corinth in 733 BC. The Assyrians under Sargon II conquered the kingdom of Israel at about 722 BC. We talked about that. Nineveh is made the capital of the Assyrian Empire in 705 BC, now from 700 to 600 BC. The destruction of the city of Babylon by the Assyrians in 689 BC. The foundation of Japan by the legendary Emperor Jammu on February the 11th, 660 BC. Ashurbanipal destroys the Elamite capital of Susa in 647 BC. The Neo-Babylonian Empire is established by Nabopolassar in 626 BC, the Draconian Constitution is developed around 624 BC. The collapse of the Assyrian Empire in 614 BC. Josiah, the king of Judah, is killed in the Battle of Carchemish or Megiddo in 609 BC. The Babylonian ruler Nebuchadnezzar II defeats the Egyptians in the Battle of Carchemish around 605 BC. Lydia, under the Aleates, the second becomes the leading power in Asia Minor and Taoism emerges in China. Marseille is founded by the Greek settlers about 600 BC. The ancient Greek poet Sappho dies about 600 BC. The Salonian constitution was developed at about 594 or 593 BC. The deportation of the Jews known as the Babylonian captivity by Nebuchadnezzar began in 586 BC. The founder of Buddhism, Siddhartha Gautama, is born somewhere around 563 BC. The Peloponnesian League developed about 550 BC. The Persian Empire then is founded by Cyrus the Great at about 550 BC. The Greek philosopher Thales of Miletus dies 547 BC. Cyrus the Great conquers the Neo-Babylonian Empire 539 BC. The Greeks from Phocaea are defeated by the Carthaginians in the Battle of Alalia around 535 BC, and Rome becomes a republic in 509 BC. The Athenian, now from 500 to 400 BC, the Athenian democracy uh, is developed around 500 BC. Uh, Themistocles is elected the archon, the chief. Uh, the main one in 493 BC. The citizens of Athens 
then defeat the Persians in the Battle of Marathon, very important in your history book, all this stuff, in 490 B.C., Darius of Persia dies in 486 B.C. The Persians, led by Xerxes I, defeat the Greek city-states under the command of Leonidas in the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 B.C. The Greek city-states, under the command of Themistocles, decisively defeat the Persians in the Battle of Salamis in 480 B.C. Let me stop right there. When the Greek city-states unified and allied under Themistocles come and defeat the Persians in the battle of the Salamis, the history of the world made a transition from east to west. Eastern philosophy, Eastern languages, reading it from right to left and, and the, the way science was developed and education was created, all those things changed. Those things changed and the world came under a Western influence beginning here in 480 B.C. The founder of Confucianism, Chinese philosopher Confucius, dies in 479 B.C. Xerxes I of Persia is murdered in 465 B.C. Uh, the beginning of the first Peloponnesian War begins in 457 B.C., the Peace of Calais ends the Persian Wars in 440 B.C. Pericles is elected Strategos of Athens in 440 B.C. And the construction of the Parthenon in Athens is completed in 432 B.C. The beginning of the Second Peloponnesian War in 431 B.C. Greek historian Herodotus dies in 430 B.C. The ancient Greek writer Sophocles dies around 406 B.C. And then the Peloponnesian Wars end with the surrender of Athens in 404 B.C. Now from 400 to 300 B.C. And I hope that you'll take note that the events that are given in secular history books as significant events increase. Each slide, I had to use smaller fonts. Each, each summary of things that happen increases uh, because of the increase of the population and the increase of the of nations, city-states become nations and wars become more complicated and so forth. Socrates is sentenced to death in 399 BC. The Roman dictator Marcus Furius Camillus captures the Etruscan city of Veii. The ancient Greek comic poet Aristophanes dies in 385 B.C. The ancient Greek physician Hippocrates dies around 370 B.C. The Greek philosopher Plato dies around 348 B.C. The, now, here's the point. Education is still, influenced, especially a study of philosophy, still heavily influenced by these guys. Uh, from Greece, these Greek philosophers. Um, so that carries on into Western world and Western education even, uh, even uh, today. The peace of Philocrates ends the war between Athens and the kingdom of Macedon in 346 B.C. Artaxerxes III of Persia conquers Egypt in 343 B.C. The Romans defeat the Latin League in the Latin War of 340 B.C. Philip of Macedon now that's Alexander the Great's daddy. Defeats Athens and its allies in the Battle of Caeronea in 338 BC. Philip of Macedon is murdered in 336 BC and is succeeded by his son. I should have said his son, I didn't put it in there. Alexander III of Macedon, commonly known as Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great launches his expedition against the Persian Empire in 334 B.C., capturing Syria, Tyre, Jerusalem, Egypt, and the Persian Empire by 330 B.C. Alexander's army refuses to continue the march eastward at the Hyphasis River in India in 325 B.C. Alexander the Great dies in Babylon without an heir on June the 13th, 323 B.C. The establishment of the Maurya Empire was in 322 B.C., Alexander's generals, Ptolemy, Cassander, uh, Lysimachus, and Seleucus, 
divide the empire of Alexander the Great among themselves in 321 BC. Now that's important because that leads to the, that leads to the to the progress and the development and progress of what will become known as the uh, the Roman Empire. But it's also important from a biblical or at least from a Christian perspective in that when Alexander the Great began his expedition, and if you'll notice, he captured Syria, Tyre, Jerusalem, Egypt, the Persian Empire. He carried with him Greek Hellenic philosophy, which had been developed by these guys up here, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all those guys. And he was completely immersed in Greek philosophy. And he, all of that was written in the Koine Greek language, which is the language of the original New Testament. And this would be in the, what's called the intertestament period. And between, between the close of the Hebrew period of the Old Testament and the opening of the Greek New Testament are these 400 years where Alexander the Great literally immerse, immerses the world in Greek Hellenic philosophy, but most importantly, the common Greek language, which is known as Koine Greek. So you can see how God Almighty used that for the message of the New Testament, which would come after, and it, was, it, it came like this because Alexander had no heir. God's at work in all that. So he has his four, he didn't have it, but his four Germain generals divided the empire up, the Greek empire among themselves. And then what is born out of that eventually is the Roman empire. Now the Roman empire would build the most, uh, the, the most uh, complicated and well-developed and engineered road system that the world had ever known. It was through those roads, those Roman highways, those Roman roads, it was through those roads that most especially the Apostle Paul walked carrying the gospel for about 6,000 miles. Not just that, but the other apostles as well. So, so God Almighty is working this whole thing to the development of, of his people and his New Testament and the sending forth of his apostles. Okay, now I'm going to quickly read through this, through a part of chapter uh, four. But the complete lineage of Judah was interrupted earlier in chapter three with the catalog of David's descendants. But we go back to this now. And the reason we go back and start back with Judah, remember he's a son of Abraham, uh, a son of Jacob. We go back to him because in the Hebrew language we see that the chronicler is developing the geography of the world through the lineage, uh, through the descendants of Judah. So the explanation is these people are here. They're influenced like this. These people are here. This is the map of an ancient time. And we can see the influence that Judah would have had and the descendants of Judah over all these people. Now, this is an erratic, uh, not a, a sporadic, I guess, um, genealogy. It is meant, and we're going to see this, it is meant for us to learn how the descendants of Judah influenced the development of the Holy Land. So this is geographical in nature. This is not so much ancestral, although it is, but it is more geographic in nature so that God's people can understand, okay, so so-and-so was from here. I begin to understand things now because I see where his lineage comes from. So let's just look at it. I'm just going to go quickly through it. The sons of Judah, Perez, Hezron, Carmi, Hur, and Shabal. And uh, Rea, uh, the son of Shabal, begat Jahat, and Jahat begat Achmei, and Lahad, and these are the family of the Zorathites, okay? The Zorathites settled an area, and we understand where they came from. These are the sons of Hur. Abitam, Jezreel. Now, Etam and Jezreel are places uh, that developed. Ishma, 
Idbash, the name of their sister was Hazel El Pani. And Penuel, the father of Gedor. Okay, whenever you see the phrase, the father of Gedor, that means that he's the guy who settled an area and it became known after him and then after his descendants. So you'll see this, the father of so-and-so. That's a place. That's a place on the mount. And Azir, the father of Hushah, these are the sons of who are the firstborn of Ephratah, the father of Bethlehem. So these guys, these guys founded Bethlehem. And you remember the prophet says, O thou Bethlehem Ephratah. Well, that means he's of Ephratah, okay? That's the guy who is the father or his descendants or the founder of Bethlehem. Ashur, the father of Tekoa, had two wives, Hilah and Naara. And Naara bore him Ahuzam and Hefer and Temani and Ha'ahashtari. These are the sons of Naara, the sons of Hilah, Zeret and Zohar, Etnan and Kaz begat Anub and Hazobibah and the families of Ahahel, the son of Harum. So these are the people who settled that area. Now, Jabez was more esteemed. Now, this guy, he just kind of pops up. He is, he is, his, he's, he is seen as the son of two different men if you study him. Two different names are given for his father. Now, there's a reason for that. He is the actual blood, blood son of, uh, of a man who, who, or he's, he, and he died, and it involves a lever at marriage. So, so there had to be two names listed according to the chronicler. He was more esteemed than his brothers, and his mother named him Jabez, saying, for I bore him in sadness or in pain. Now, let me tell you the importance of this. In that culture, a person's name meant a lot. Now, you don't see the L-E-L, the name of God, or, or Yah, or Ah, the name of Yahweh. You don't see that tagged into his name anywhere because his mother just decided that he has caused me so much pain and sadness. I'm going to call him the way I felt when I was giving birth to him. I'm going to call him pain. So he would have, he would have been a laughing stock. That's kind of like that old song, A Boy Named Sue, okay? This is A Boy Named Sue right here. Developing territory and gaining esteem and flocks and herds and more territory was very important to a young man in that culture in those days. He would have never had a chance because of his name, a laughing stock. But what did he do? He prayed. Who did he pray to? He prayed to the God of Israel. It, here's what I'm saying. It gives you an idea and an understanding of even though, even though they didn't have much of a Bible at all in their day, they had faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, their God. So he prayed. Jabez called to the God of Israel saying, oh, that you would bless me and increase my territory. I'm a failure. I shake hands with somebody, they ask me my name, and when I tell them my name, they just die laughing. I can't get anything done unless you do it for me. That you would bless me and increase my territory and let your hand be with me so that you save me from the evil that is inherent in my name. I'm a nobody. I am otherwise a shame, a nothing and that you would do this so as not to cause me pain. Don't let me live the life that I've been named. And God fulfilled that which he had requested. Now here we are in the lineage of Judah. And the people of God are taught a very important lesson 
about faith and prayer through the man who in the, in the Yabez, in the he, Jabez, this simple but beautiful prayer, casting himself and his emptiness before Yahweh. My name says it all. I'm a nobody. I'm a laughing stock. I have no hope unless you would intervene and help me. And God did. So this gives hope to the people of God that regardless of the pain, regardless of the shame, they can always call out to the God of Israel faithfully. And he is there to hear them. And Kalub, the brother of Shuha, begat Mahir. He is the father of Eshton. So he founded that area. Eshton begat Beth Rapha and Pasia and Tehna, the father of Ernachash. And these are the people of Recha. So here's a whole place described. And the sons of Kenaz. Okay. Kenaz is the father of Caleb, Caleb, old Caleb, back in the, back in the days of uh, the spies. Othniel and Sarah. Now remember, Caleb the Kenizzite became a Judahite. He identified himself with the tribe of Judah. Now Kenizzites were descendants of Edom, Esau, Edomites. But Caleb forsook that, right? But here are the rest of them. And the sons of Othniel and Hathat. Now he, he um, Caleb, Caleb, was granted the privilege of having Hebron. He settled it. Remember there were the Anachim, the giants were up there. It was on a mountain. I want that mountain. That's where the grapes of Eskel grow. That's the richest place around. It's the toughest place because the Anakim were giants and they had fortified and walled cities. And he would be at a disadvantage because he would have to go up and fight the ones who are giants and they have the upper, the upper ground, the upper hand, and he defeated them. As an old man, he defeated them. And he was given... So the importance here is that otherwise we are told that Othniel, for example, helped Caleb in the settling of Hebron. And Hatat and Meonatai begat Ophra, not Oprah, Ophra. And Sariah begat Joab, the father of Geherashim in the valley of the craftsmen, for they were craftsmen. Well known place to the people in that day. Obvious the influence that Judah had in his descendants throughout the land. And the sons of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, Eru, Elah, and Naam, the sons of Elah, Uchnaz. And the sons of Jahalel, Zif, Zipha, Tariah, and Asharel. And the sons of Ezra, Jeter, Mered, Efer, and Jalon. And she conceived Miriam, and Shemai, now that's not the Miriam that belongs to Moses. And Ishba, the father of Eshtemoah. His wife, the Judahitis, bore Jared, the father of Gedor. So that's where he settled. And Heber, the father of Soko. And Jacuthiel, the father of Zanoah. And these are the sons of Bethia, the daughter of Pharaoh, whom Mered married. We have these things thrown in to let us know and to understand that there was intermarriage here and there within the genealogies. And the sons of the wife of Hodiah, the sister of Naham, the father of Kilah, the Garmite, and Eshtemoah, the Maakatite. Okay, so that's a place where they, found, they landed and founded. And the sons of Shimon, Amnon and Renah, Ben-Hanan and Talon, and the sons of Ishi, Zoheth and Ben-Zoheth. The sons of Shelah, the son of Judah, Er, the father of Lecha, Ladah, the father of Marasha, and the, these are places that they settled in. And the families of Bet 
Obadat Habuz, the house of Ashbel. Joachim, the people of Kozeba. Joash, Saraf, who married in Moab. Okay, so these guys spent time in Moab and did the forbidden thing and took wives from Moab. And Joshibi Lechem, and the records are ancient. In other words, it may embarrass you that they married in Moab, but it's on record and they're ancient and they're, they're true. And they are the potters and the dwellers in plantations and hedges with the king in his service dwelt there. Okay, we're going to stop there. They developed a society. They developed a culture. These different, these different uh, craftsmen and workers came together. And, and, and these were the, this is the formation of the people of God. These are the descendants first of David. And then we saw a wider span, the descendants of Judah, which, which had influence on the development of the of the geopolitical planes and, and land of what we call the Holy Land. So that's how, that's how God develops this and how he developed the, uh, the line of David. We saw all of these things in, in the genealogies and, you know, these guys were craftsmen and these guys did this and these guys did that. They settled here and they settled there. That's not what the world history tells you. But this is a development of the story of the Christ of God and how God meticulously attended to individuals, to generations, even to settled areas of the land so that at last the Christ of God will be born at the perfect place, the perfect time, in the perfect way as the perfect state Savior. We're going to stop there and have our deacon prayer time.